I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Timeline Tapes. I'm Nate Fisher, and this is the podcast brought to you by me and the guys from Timeline, the home for world history documentaries on YouTube. We know that sometimes you don't have the time to sit down and watch a full documentary, so we came up with this idea to turn these into podcasts that you can listen to whenever you want and wherever you are. Last week, we explored the foundations of Queen Elizabeth I's Sea Dogs, a military branch that turned to piracy and slave trading, creating tension between England and Spain's monarch Philip II. We start part two with Philip's armada of 130 ships on course to the English Channel. Once again, Anna Massey is the voice of the show, but she's also joined by professors Bruce Lenman, Maria Jose Rodriguez Salgado, and Charles Milton, who pop up throughout the episode. A year later, Philip launched his great enterprise of England. On the 30th of July, 1588, the Spanish Armada was spotted off Plymouth Hole. Raleigh was given a desk job. Drake was made vice-admiral. Privateers had caused the war, and privateers were going to fight it. It's part of the legend that grew up around Drake's name after his death that as the Armada hove into view, he was playing bowls, and that he insisted on finishing his game before setting sail to beat the Spanish. But Drake's loyalties as a naval commander were to prove just as ambiguous as Raleigh's loyalties as a politician. Because for Drake, profit and patriotism were just two sides of the same coin. Drake had really never fought set-piece battles. What he was great at, what his strengths were, were attacking single ships, picking them off, plucking the Spanish booty. And that's the strategy he chose during the Armada. Drake was leading a squadron of English ships up the English Channel in pursuit of the Spanish. So he had a number of other captains under his command. His task, or his job, was to have a lantern at the rear of his ship to lead the other ships behind him. But when the action commenced, the lantern on Drake's ship mysteriously extinguished itself. He disappeared. His other captains couldn't find him. They couldn't follow him. They had no idea where he'd gone. And it was only later that they discovered that Drake had gone after one of the Spanish vessels on his own, the Rosario. Just coincidentally, she happened to be the Spanish pay ship. She was carrying 50,000 golden ducats on board. 
When they found out that he'd gone after the Spanish pay ship, they were furious. Sir Martin Frobisher, one of his captains, went so far as to say that he was a cowardly knave or a traitor. Now, those are pretty strong words for Elizabethan England. Drake was a man who would follow his own nose and his own interests over and above those of the Queen, or indeed, as in this case, the country. That's not to say that he wasn't a patriot, it's just to say he's an adventurer with very uh, clear idea of what his own best interests are, and he follows them. So I think it's entirely in character for a man who is very frequently on the wrong side of the law, you must remember. This is what he does, and what he does brilliantly. The Armada is essentially an escorted convoy, and the aim is to break through the very limited number of Spanish ships that ever meant to fire a cannon, which did all the fighting, if they could, to the targets inside that screen, which carried troops, guns, supplies, and money. And any of these would have represented a great loss to the prospective campaign if you could have destroyed them. So the man is doing his duty, which would also have been very profitable. But then that's the best kind of duty. The Armada was eventually defeated by a combination of good luck and bad weather. There was an indecisive battle off the coast of France. English fire ships dispersed the Spanish fleet, and a storm did the rest. Drake has ever since been fondly remembered as the man who was instrumental in defeating the Armada, even though at the time he was given little or no credit. For Raleigh, the defeat of the Armada provided an opportunity to resume his business ventures and to pick up the thread of his colonial ambitions. By now, he expected that the men, women and children he'd sent to the shores of America would have established the city of Raleigh. In 1589, he dispatched Governor John White back to America with supplies. No ships had got through to Roanoke for the last three years, and now it was too late. All of Raleigh's colonists, including White's own daughter and granddaughter, had disappeared and they were never seen again. But there's an interesting end to the story. A hundred years later, a surveyor sailed to the shores of North Carolina, and when he stepped ashore, he was met by an Indian tribe with fair hair and blue eyes. Anxious not to be linked with failure, Raleigh began to disassociate himself from the colonists he'd sent to their fate. Now he came up with an even more ambitious scheme to find and conquer the mythical kingdom of El Dorado. After the defeat of the Spanish Armada, there was a boom in privateering. A hundred or more licenses were issued every year. The most notorious privateer of them all was still Sir Francis Drake, with a scar on his right cheek and a bullet wound in his leg to prove it. Now approaching 50 and middle-aged stoutness, he used the booty he'd stolen at sea to enhance his reputation on land. He hated being called a pirate. He, he craved respectability. And any Elizabethan gentleman wanting respectability bought one of these, a country pile. The Spanish Catholics were his arch enemies. He ended up living in the nave of a Catholic church. He must have been lying there in his bed, thinking he'd done pretty well for himself. He became a member of parliament and Lord Mayor of Plymouth. 
But in London and at court, he was dogged by his humble origins. No matter what his pretensions, he was still the farmer's son who'd been born in a house with two rooms, one for the humans and the other for the animals. Drake tried so hard to be respectable. He dressed in the courtly costumes. He tried to get an entree into the court. He gave vast amounts of gold to the courtiers to try and buy their favours. They all took it, but they didn't really become his friends. He never really, he never really managed it like Raleigh did. In 1589, the Queen gave Drake orders to attack Lisbon. She wanted a repeat of his spectacular raid against Cadiz. It ended in disaster, and thousands of Englishmen were killed. He was hauled before the Privy Council to answer for his mistakes. Anxious to secure his place in history, he commissioned his chaplain to write an official biography but permission to publish his memoirs was denied by the Queen, because now Drake was in disgrace. As he approached old age, only his recent failures were remembered. His early triumphs were forgotten. In 1595, he made one last privateering voyage to the Caribbean. He died from dysentery and was buried in a lead-lined coffin at sea. Sir Walter Raleigh was still riding his luck. He was the most brilliant Renaissance courtier, and there was no one better at flattering the Virgin Queen. Praised be Diana's fair and harmless light. Praised be the dews wherewith she moists the ground. Praised be her beams, the glory of the night. Praised be her power by which all powers abound. Praise be her nymphs with whom she decks the woods. Praise be her knights in whom true honour lives. Praise be that force by which she moves the floods. Let that Diana shine, which all these gives. But by the 1590s, the Virgin Queen was no longer in the first flush of her youth and Raleigh now committed political suicide by starting a liaison with Bess Throckmorton, one of Elizabeth's maids of honor. A hundred years later, it was an episode that was still being told with relish by the 17th century gossip, John Aubrey. One time, getting one of the maids of honor up against a tree in a wood, who seemed at first boarding to be something fearful of her honor and modest, she cried, Sweet Sir Walter, what do you ask me? Will you undo me? Nay, sweet Sir Walter, sweet Sir Walter, Sir Walter! At last, as the danger and the pleasure at the same time grew higher, she cried in the ecstasy, Swisser Watter, Swisser Swatter! She proved with child. They marry in secret, the child is born, and then both of them do their utmost to carry on as though nothing had happened. And, of course, a secret like this can't be kept. It comes out. So the Queen gets to know of it. So what do they do? Well, instead of doing the sensible thing and falling prostrate at her feet and begging her forgiveness, they both try and brazen it out. And the Queen gives them both time. The Queen pays out the rope, if you like. But in the end and they're still not showing any contrition whatsoever, 
She comes down hard on them. She puts them both in the tower. No courtier married without Elizabeth's permission, let alone seduce one of her maids of honour. But his stay in the tower was brief. One of Raleigh's privateering vessels had captured a huge amount of Spanish treasure. As soon as all the mariners realised that Raleigh was locked up in the tower, they just helped themselves to the treasure and took it back to their own homes. The Queen was furious, and so were the court, and courtiers were sent down to try and recover all this gold, the jewels, everything on board. But the, the mariners wouldn't give it up. It took Raleigh. Raleigh was the only man who could get this treasure back. And so the Queen was forced to release Raleigh from the tower to recover all the booty that the mariners had run off with. Raleigh was free again, but in disgrace. And Elizabeth banished him to his country house in Dorset. But Raleigh was still desperately ambitious. And during these years of exile from the court, he began to plot his comeback. What he needed was a grand theatrical gesture, something that would capture the imagination of his queen, answer his critics at court, and pay him back handsomely. It was Sarmiento, Raleigh's one-time captive and friend, who first sowed the seed in Raleigh's mind of the kingdom of El Dorado. Every morning, the great lord or prince of El Dorado anoints himself with gold until his entire body is covered from the soles of his feet to his head. His looks are as resplendent as a gold object worked by the hands of a great artist. And he washes away at night what he puts on each morning so that it is discarded and lost. And he does this every day of the year. Raleigh convinced himself not only that El Dorado really did exist, but that he knew its precise location. And he was absolutely certain that he was the man to conquer it. Stranger things had been found in the interior of South America. Who was to say that some of these stories weren't in fact true and that there were untapped riches in South America? just waiting to be exploited, if only someone would get in there and seize them. For the first time in his life, Raleigh crossed the Atlantic. Arriving off the coast of Guiana, he journeyed up the Orinoco in search of El Dorado. When Raleigh returned, he wrote a blow-by-blow -blow account of his adventures, and it became a 16th-century bestseller. I wandered 400 miles into the said country by land and river. The further we went on, our victual decreasing and the air breeding great faintness, we grew weaker and weaker when we had most need of strength and ability. Our companies began to despair, the weather being extreme hot. The river bordered with very high trees that kept away the air and the current against us, every day stronger than other. Raleigh had told his men that it was just two or three days' journey upriver. A month later, El Dorado was still nowhere to be seen. On the banks of the river, they met an Indian chieftain called Topiawari. He told them that he was 110 years old, 
and that he knew of the Golden Man. I asked what nations those were which inhabited on the further side of the mountains. He answered with a great sigh that he remembered in his father's lifetime that there came down into the valley of Guiana a nation from so far off as the sun slept. They had slain and rooted out so many of the ancient people as there were leaves in the wood upon all the trees and had now made themselves lords of all. I desired him to instruct me what he could of the passage into the golden parts of Guiana. He gave me an answer to this effect, that I was sure, with all my company, to be buried there. This was as far as Raleigh got. He went back to his ships with nothing more to show for his labors than a handful of fool's gold. On his return home, he was met with derision by members of the court. And the England he knew was about to change irrevocably. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to Timeline Tapes and our journey with the Sea Dogs. Unbeknownst to Sir Walter Raleigh, he is returning to a new England, one without Queen Elizabeth. On the 24th of March, 1603, the Queen passed away in her sleep at the age of 69. She was a lady, said Raleigh, whom time had surprised. Others, less kindly, said she'd outlived her day. Raleigh owed everything he had to Elizabeth, and now he was left to face the new reality under the new king, James I of England and VI of Scotland. Raleigh's world really does end with the Queen's death because her successor is so radically different. The king quite likes handsome male favourites. He's bisexual. He's in quite good terms with his Danish queen. 
but he prefers pretty boys. And Raleigh isn't that kind of handsome man. He's utterly heterosexual. Raleigh had really not much chance of winning over a mature Scottish king who has no complexes about Spain, who doesn't want to continue the war, and who is initially very suspicious of this late Elizabethan hawk. James had his heart set on peace. What did Raleigh do? He came hotfoot to James and started advocating continuing the war with Spain, a new way of pursuing the war with Spain. It was a monumentally stupid thing to do, given the political circumstances of the time. The power behind the new throne was Robert Cecil. Raleigh, not for the first time in his life, found himself sidelined. And he chose to confide in a newfound friend, Lord Cobham. He denounced the king and his government. He discussed with Cobham the possibility of negotiating for a pension from Spain in return for intelligence. And he discussed possible landing places in England or Wales that, a, that an invading Spanish army might choose to, to land at. He was, in a way, giving, giving voice to his um, imagination and he was giving vent to his irritation with the way things were going. When Cecil got to hear of their plots, he threw them both into the tower. Raleigh assumed he could talk his way out of it, but he couldn't, and he was charged with high treason. It's the classic illustration of the price Raleigh paid for his ambiguity. I mean, all courtiers practice dissimulation, but with Raleigh it goes very deep indeed, and he argued that he was trying to lead plotters on, whilst the evidence could be interpreted the other way to say he was part of the plot. Who knows? Raleigh was put on trial for his life. With a sense of the occasion, James decided that the trial should take place in Winchester Great Hall, under the medieval round table of King Arthur, the symbol of truth and honesty. When Raleigh walked into this hall, he was met by a terrifying sight. The place was packed. It was full of an angry, hostile crowd. There were people cheering and baying for his blood. This was the best hated man in the world. They'd come here to see him convicted for treason. Even worse than the jeering crowds was the prosecuting counsel. To a man, they were Raleigh's sworn enemies. They hated him, they wanted him destroyed. And at the centre of them all sat Sir Edward Coke, the Attorney General, who was determined to have Raleigh convicted, hanged, drawn and quartered. He had a team of the finest lawyers in England lined up in the hall to support him. But he was reduced to jeering, to bullying Raleigh. He didn't, he couldn't quite nail down Raleigh. He didn't know what to do. And Raleigh, don't forget, Raleigh was the most flamboyant, ostentatious individual. He used all his charm to save himself. He was fighting for his life. 
Sir Walter Raleigh, thou art the most vile traitor that ever lived. Mr. Attorney, you speak indiscreetly, barbarously, and uncivilly. Thou art an odious fellow. Thy name is hateful in all the realm of England for thy pride. Mr. Attorney, have you done? Yes, if you have no more to say. If you have done, then I have somewhat more to say. Nay, I will have the last word for the king. Nay, I will have the last word for my life. Raleigh gave an electrifying performance. It was a performance of pure genius. One Scottish friend of King James, a friend of the King's, said that before the trial started, he would have gone a hundred miles to see Raleigh hanged, but by the end of it, he would have ridden a thousand miles to save his life. You, gentlemen of the jury, mark this. I am no traitor. I was not so mad. I was never any plotter against my country. I was never false to the crown of England. Whether I live or die, I shall stand as true a subject as ever the king hath. My innocency is my defense. In the event, the jury took just 15 minutes to find Raleigh guilty. The much maligned jury, which considered for 15 minutes and then brought back the guilty verdict, actually returned the correct verdict in law. It was harsh, but it was just. The judgment of this court is that you shall be drawn upon a hurdle through the open streets to the place of execution, there to be hanged and cut down alive, and your body shall be opened your heart and bowels plucked out, and your privy members cut off and thrown into the fire before your eyes. Then your head to be stricken off from your body, and your body shall be divided into four quarters to be disposed of at the king's pleasure. And may God have mercy upon your soul. But James decided not to carry out the sentence straight away and Raleigh was locked in the bloody tower to await his fate. Most people think he lived in some sort of dripping dungeon, but actually this place was quite comfortable. He even had his wife here. He conceived a son here, and he had friends regularly dropping in to talk about America and have a look over maps and plans. And you know, Raleigh was used to having a great army of servants to attend all his needs. Here, well, he had three to look after him. He didn't really like the lodgings here, so he decided to remodel them a bit. He put in a new ceiling, he changed the windows, he made it as comfortable as he could, and after the drafty Durham House in Sherbourne, this place perhaps was quite cosy. He used to pop outside and have a little walk on the ramparts, and it became something of a sight for the capital. Londoners used to gather beneath the walls and watch its majestic Elizabethan, a relic of the past, as he walked up and down. Perhaps Raleigh grew rather fond of this room. I mean, it's a sort of archetypal Elizabethan study. He used to write at the desk. He, he actually wrote his monumental history of the world here. He used to study here. And even more amazingly, he used to give lessons here to the Prince of Wales, Prince Henry, who was King James I's son. King James was the one that sent him here. Raleigh grew old in the tower. He passed his 60th birthday and he suffered two strokes. And yet, after 12 years' imprisonment, he persuaded James to give him one last throw of the dice. 
In June 1617, the last of the Elizabethan adventurers set sail once more. Raleigh had cut a deal with the king. He persuaded James that on his previous voyage to El Dorado, he discovered a gold mine in Guiana. It was a lie, but James, who was nearly bankrupt, was willing to believe him. And Raleigh, hoping for the best, went back to South America. Had he come back with vast amounts of gold, James would have forgiven everything. He was given orders on pain of death not to attack the Spanish. But when he arrived at the mouth of the Orinoco, he found the Spanish were waiting for him. There was a pitched battle. Raleigh's son Watt was killed. It had been a lunatic scheme that had ended in failure. And he blamed everyone but himself. El Dorado had only ever existed in Raleigh's fervid imagination. His dreams of wealth and honor and his hopes of final redemption were now dead. The age of Elizabeth's pirates was at an end. 400 years after their deaths, the legacy of both Raleigh and Drake is still controversial. You can't say that they were either thugs or heroes. They're both. That's what makes them interesting and remarkable men. If it wasn't for that risk-taking, that element of risk-taking that can be described as sheer lunacy at times, they wouldn't have done what they did. At the end of their lives, their reputations were in eclipse. Only later would they be remembered as heroes. Both Drake and Raleigh become major figures in maritime myths when the British want to reassure themselves they're the bulldog breed and that they're natural sailors. They appeal to the romantic sensibility and they are perhaps more important in their afterlife than they are during their lifetime. When Raleigh returned to England after the disaster of his second Guiana expedition, he was a ruined man. The death sentence of 1603 was still hanging over his head. But for more than a month, King James did nothing. It was as if he wanted Raleigh just to slip away. But Raleigh was determined to defend himself. He came up to London. He wanted to defend himself in front of the king. Well, the king remembered what had happened in Winchester. He certainly didn't want that to happen again. He convened a secret trial here in Westminster and the men there condemned Raleigh to be executed. He was to be killed on the following morning. Raleigh had tried to secure a pardon from James, but once it became clear he would not get one, he turned the execution from a tragedy into a triumph. His life, after all, had become meaningless, and yet on the execution scaffold, he found meaning in that he inflicts a total publicity defeat on the bandy-legged Scotsman who was killing him. King James had chosen the day of the Lord Mayor's parade for Raleigh's execution. He'd hoped the crowds would be drawn elsewhere, but a vast number of people turned up to witness this spectacle. You know, Drake had died 20 years previously. The reign of the Queen was a distant memory. They wanted to see the last of the great Elizabethans meet his death.
And it's almost as if Raleigh had staged, managed his execution. He dressed in his finest costumes. He was wearing a magnificent ruff, and he'd written a wonderful speech for his final exit. People set a lot of store by how you met your end. And it was entirely in, ca in character that he made an extremely dignified end. At times, a, a, a quite witty end. Yes, he spoke for the best part of three quarters of an hour. I thank God heartily that he hath brought me into the light to die and hath not suffered me to die in the dark prison of the tower. I have long been a seafaring man, a soldier and a courtier. And in the temptations of these there is enough to overthrow a good mind and a good man. But I hope to be saved and to have my sins washed away by the precious blood of our Saviour Christ. So I take my leave of you all, making my peace with God. I have a long journey to take. I must bid the company farewell. Strike, man! Strike! I perceive now that my death was determined from the very first day. That's it for Timeline Tapes this week. Thanks so much for joining us. If you need another history fix before next week, you can always visit our YouTube channel, where there are hundreds of world history documentaries to explore. If you want to contact Timeline Tapes, you can email us at timeline at little.studios.com, and you can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Those are both at TimelineWH. If you enjoy this episode, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you want to, give us a five-star rating and write a review as well. I've been Nate Fisher. This has been Timeline Tapes. Let's go down in history together. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.